More than 100 companies have been licensed to sell the Caped Crusader. Not the movie, but the merchandise. Even his royal purple badness, Prince, has come out with the soundtrack. More hype for a movie that hasn't quite left the Bat Cave yet. I think it's going to be rad. Really? What's rad? Radical. Okay. Cool. Theater employees will probably clean up in overtime this weekend. People have been trying to buy tickets now since early this morning. So as the fever builds, Batman is already in the bag, retailers say. And if the movie's a hit or not, may not even matter. Now, Batman will open in some 2,000 theaters nationwide this weekend. And considering all the money they spent on the hype, the movie producers are hoping that they too can scream, holy cow, that is, when the box office receipts are totaled. Larry Mullins, Channel 5 News, at a theater near you. Hello, and welcome to The Brick Pit. This is the podcast you didn't know you didn't need with uh, Adam, that's me, hosting today, and our two esteemed guests who are always with me. And uh, I don't have any witty comment to say about them today because I'm ill-prepared, so I'll just introduce them outright. <laughs> uh, first How is, is our that good different team. than any other podcast yeah, we do? That's fair. Uh, first up is who, who you've just heard, that's Josh. Hey, Josh. And, uh, hey, also- hey, Adam, the man that's given up on life. <laughs> so, I, just don't, I just don't care. So true. It's <laughs> whatever minimal effort I was putting forth before is not even worth it anymore. So you and, people uh, aren't worth it anymore. <laughs> well, ever since I got the, you know, once we crossed the million listener threshold, the checks just write themselves. So, I mean, I don't even really have we to can put any garbage out here and people <laughs> just consume it. <laughs> it's the, it's the curse of popularity. So, and, uh, also joining as always is, uh, our good friend, Jason. So hi, Jason. Hello, Adam. Thank you for putting forth an effort. <laughs> it, it is. He's just effort. here so he doesn't get fined. <laughs> I heard, that's funny. I've heard that in a while. All right. So what are we talking about tonight? Well, this week I thought it would be fun since uh, the fellas in our last uh, full show, they did a, an episode on summer vacation. I thought I'd continue the theme and I'd like to talk about the summer blockbuster which is an interesting phenomena, you know, to me because I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a nerd when it comes to this kind of thing. And when I was reading about it a little bit, what I thought was kind of cool was the origin of going to the movies in the summertime actually really wasn't a thing until 1925 when Carrier, uh, the air conditioning company, brought something new to the world, which was air conditioned theaters. Uh, according to their website, they say they had the very first air conditioner theater in the world when they came to Rivoli in Times Square, New York. It was Memorial Day. Things didn't go exactly as planned. They didn't start cooling quick enough. They started it when people were there. And of course, it takes a long time to cool a space that big and lessons were learned. But you know, by the end of the movie, the room was very comfortable. That was a novelty for that many people to be indoors in the heat of summer and not be just sweating And actually, in some ways, it made it more successful because people were appreciative of it. The longer they were there, they got colder. What matters for cinematic history for this is that the head of Paramount Pictures, uh, a guy named Adolf Zucker, was in the room at the time. And he watched as the temperature dropped, people put their fans down and focused on the movie and actually became more engaged in the films. He declared, he's like, this is the wave of the future for movie theaters. 
And so, uh, according to Internet Legend, by the end of 1930, over 300 theaters had marquee banners that said, Cooled by Refrigeration. Adam, did you read this in Carrier AC Weekly? That sounds pretty propagandist. It it was, uh, well, you know, I subscribed to that. I also subscribed to the Linux refrigeration. (laughs) You know, they both come in an envelope from Vance Refrigeration. Right. Well, the the, the Linux pinups are typically more tastefully done. It's usually the... um, Just kiss, yeah. (laughs) It's the the refrigerator install men. Yeah, it's the Maytag men on the other one. I just am not. (laughs) Unlike unlike the other ones, they don't airbrush out the cracks. I appreciate (laughs) it. (laughs) They're the Bob Guccione of (laughs) AC (laughs) pinups. I can remember my grandfather telling me uh, in our hometown that the butter's crack. Yeah, in the pinups from the carrier that. in our hometown, whenever he was a kid, that the first place in town that he knew of that had a refrigerator that had air conditioning in the summer was the movie theater. Uh, I think it was called Princess Theater. That's probably doesn't matter. I guess they would sell you an all day ticket, and you and they weren't that many movies. You know, oftentimes you just watch the same movie over and over again. He says just sit in the cold air, like that was what you did. He watched Birth of a Nation thirty times. <laughs> it was very formative in our. <laughs> <laughs> Even even when the air conditioner broke down, he just stayed in and kept watching. It was <laughs> and this was like the seventies, which was the weird thing. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. So anyway, <laughs> the summer movie experience kind of began as a way to escape the heat in a lot of places. Which well, and I think that that tradition continued because, like, we had. Uh, yeah. I don't know if they do it anymore. Man, they would do like summer movies for kids and it was like yeah. reduced tickets. Like uh, my parents would drop us off at like nine o'clock in the morning. We'd pay a dollar 50 or whatever. And we'd watch two or three movies. I guess that was the babysitter. So yeah. <laughs> they're still, I mean, they're, and, yeah. and we'll, and they do like uh will Rogers charity roundups all the time in between the movies. And I'm like, dude, I ain't got no money. I'm a kid. <laughs> so, the part of the story Josh isn't telling you is that his parents never actually picked him up from that. They <laughs> he just, walked home. I lived in that movie theater for 15 years in the in the projection booth. Did you work in a movie theater at some point? No, <laughs> but I studied people who did. Yeah. <laughs> I worked in a movie theater for a couple of years right after high school and it was a it was a fun job, but anyway, so the next sort of thing I want to talk about is where does the word, you know, the summer blockbuster, where does the word blockbuster come from in this context and First, we need to describe what summer is and the origin of the <laughs> word summer, if we're going to get into etymology. So it is interesting that the concept of four distinct seasons is a Western concept brought by colonization in Northern Europe to the colonies. You know, like there's a more or less eight seasons in most places in the world instead of I just wish four. I would have shut my fat mouth. <laughs> So do I. <laughs> so do I. Such times. <laughs> the blockbuster is originally was used to describe bombs in World War II when the Allied bombing would target key industrial areas in Italy, and they'd literally blow up an entire block. That's where the word was first kind of coined. There's a book which I'll, I'll be honest, I own, but I have not read which is called The Return of the Epic Film by Sheldon Hall. The only reason I know this quote is because it was in the internet. I was like, oh, I have that book. So I went and pulled it. 
he describes a 1950 Daily Mirror article which said that uh, Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah would be a box office blockbuster when it opened in the UK. And while it had been used prior to that sort of describe other Hollywood releases, it got picked up in popular media after that and it became a thing. But it wasn't necessarily a summer blockbuster. That concept was very specific to a single film and it is widely accepted to be derivative of that. It's actually a movie that I'd like Josh to talk about a little bit, and we can go ahead and get into the movies after that. But part of the 1970s, summer months weren't particularly actually considered very good movie times because people were on vacation and they didn't do a lot of things. People, of course, would escape into theaters, but they would do like long runs of movies that were released in the spring to hold them over to the fall. Did you say escape into movies like like, uh, Oswald? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's exactly what I meant. Would find them. See, I mean, so, yeah. I, I, I know things about histories, but <laughs> that was that was in November. <laughs> that wasn't the summer, Josh. <laughs> that was in November. So the you're, summer you're wrecking, was, you're wrecking my riffs here, man. <laughs> the summer. That's the what summer, he does. The uh, summer. Uh, that, well, I mean, we each have our role, and <laughs> you're pouring water in my cereal, man. <laughs> Like, I'm not a psychopath. Tell me, tell me it's milk. <laughs> it, it all came down in the 1970s to Jaws, uh, which came out in 1975. I'm not familiar and with that. You've never seen it. Never heard of it. <laughs> um, is that about that, a dentist? That, oh, is. that's the one with Dustin Hoffman, right? You're, yeah, no, no, you're thinking of Finding Nemo. That's <laughs> <laughs> what it has come to mean is a high-budget, highly marketed action packed film that is like a must see event. And a lot of the movies we're going to talk about the summers they came out, they were cultural. It was what everybody was talking about. Like when people would go to a water cooler at the office, Hey, did you see that movie? It's really great. Everybody's talking about it, you know? And, uh, another, it sounded exactly like that when I said it too. <laughs> <laughs> the excitement was palpable. <laughs> hey man, you see that movie? It's amazing. My life life changed. And and you know what? They're like, you should do a podcast. You are enthralling. (laughs) No one has ever uttered those words to anybody on this podcast right now, ever, other than us to each other. Yeah. We're the great, clearly, we're the best. Like, I mean, we each heard each other talking. We're like, you know what? Together, I need more of that we, in my we life. Could, we, yeah, we could, <laughs> I wish I could replay this conversation over and over again. If we recorded <laughs> it, we would never have to be lonely. We could just listen to ourselves all the time. And then what's even better is every time you listen to yourself, that click number goes up and you get that dopamine hit. doesn't matter it was you that clicked it. That's fine. <laughs> it feels the That's same. That's why all of our episodes are in the hundreds. Uh, <laughs> this, is my, this is my daily commute. It is it is weird that you know like you know the statistics say you know you have average episodes like 3000 listens but we only have 9 subscribers you know so, <laughs> I I subscribe too I mean I guess I'm one of the 9 but you know anyway so another movie that came out shortly after that and kind of like cemented this concept was Star Wars in 77 and ever is that since a documentary then, it is. It is. It's it's actually uh, not at all what it sounds like. It's mostly about the Civil War. And well, <laughs> there's certainly there a case can be made that there's very little wars in Star Wars. In the in the Star Wars, there's <laughs> like true. three battles. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's true. It was a war of words. 
It was, a, it was a war of ideas, man. Ideological clashes. So we want to talk about Jaws? There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. Yeah, so since you've recently watched it again. and Yeah, so I, I watched Jaws on an island on a beach on the weekend that it happened in the movie. It was like, oh, uh, that's cool. Well, like, that's not of a shark. Yes, and and for added realism, they murdered a kid, <laughs> kind of shark costume. I don't want to like talk too much about like the making of and and this because that again like because it's the first blockbuster and it's a it's an insanely good film. There's endless better researched, <laughs> more interesting podcasts that talk about Jaws. So my most recent viewing is that I think. For me personally, I think it's Spielberg's best film. I honestly do. It, it's an absolute, total masterpiece. And he was 26 years old when he directed it. Just totally unproven. He, I mean, he basically uh, helped usher in new wave of, of cinema. The cinematography, it's brilliant. And it's really a, an interesting bridge between old school and new school filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that struck me on this viewing, besides the, my wife is, uh, she's getting her master's in art, but she's taking this class that has, that's, they were talking about mise-en-scene and stuff. And I was like, finally, oh, I, can, <laughs> I can, I can relate to you in some small way yeah so while we're watching i'm you know we're, i'm kind of pointing out the blocking and stuff because i mean just like the mise-en-scene in jaws is is perfection just like the the shots tell a story just from where people are standing and what's in the frame yeah just inform you so much so there's a scene where the guy steals the pot roast from his wife and they go and they're all kind of in shadowed and it's like it's obviously voiceover. I'm tired. Let's stop before someone reports us. Don't worry. The chief lives on the other side of the island. Am I coming in straight? Don't worry. Just keep rolling. We better catch something. This is my wife's holiday roast. Don't worry about it. Three thousand dollars buys an awful lot of roast. <laughs> Come and get it. Tide's taking it right out. Uh, can't we go home? Mm-hmm. Um, of them, and it's it's like really staccato. And we've been watching a lot of Hitchcock lately. Oh, yeah. I was like, man, I was like, man, this scene plays out like a classic kind of Hitchcock scene, but it's also like the comedic asides in a Shakespearean play. Yeah. It's like, like you've had all this serious stuff where this kid is like 
brutally murdered by a shark. I mean, like fountains of blood, Evil Dead style. Really heavy stuff's happening. And then you've got these two quirky characters as kind of like a breather. And I was like, wow. So like the pacing is really... Yeah. Classic, but it's also like some of the shots on the water. Like there's great sound design when the camera goes underwater. You get that sound of like water filling your ears and then it pops out. It's really like just incredible on every level. You can really see where cinema's, he's pushing the envelope of cinema. Like where, like at that point, there's no going back. But it's also the camera's not so super fluid or anything there's a there's a lot of zooms and stuff like that but there's a lot of static shots that are just beautiful you can see even like on the beach you know and there's like there's a cold crowd of people and stuff about five minutes in everybody quieted down and was enthralled and i'm sure 90 percent of the people there had seen jaws at least once you know it is a movie that can capture attention let me ask you this is do you think it's Shakespeare's or Shakespeare? Goodness gracious! Do yes. you think it's Steven Spielberg's <laughs> best film because it showcased what was at the time new filmography style, a different approach to telling the story that w- that was kind of novel. Like another thing was like the score was kind of cool. It was a movie that pieced together a lot of different things in a really masterful I, I way. I think just every th- there's a shot of the orca or whatever at night. Yeah, and a um, shooting star shoots across the sky, and that was like just happened to be captured. That wasn't CGI. It wasn't you know special effects or anything. They just happened to capture that, and that kind of me encapsulates the entire movie. It's like everything just fell together, and the stars aligned. It's a nearly flawless film. It is, yeah, and and just the script. And the acting, like Roy Scheider is amazing. There's there's all these moments that are like really powerful. Like when uh, the little boy is going into shock and he goes yeah. to the hospital. And so Roy Scheider hands the, the youngest to his wife and says, take him home. And she says, home, New York. And he says, home here. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's just like a million things happening in that one shot. And it's so like grounded and real yeah, that you can't help but be captivated by it. I would say for anybody who's never seen this movie, or if you're introducing, if there's a young person in your life, that's a film aficionado. It would be worth it to me to watch this movie twice in the same weekend. What I would do is if I was introducing somebody to this movie that really cared about film like this, is just watch it once through. And then go and look on YouTube, and there's a lot of like, what probably on DVD specials was commentary about it or explanations or whatever. But you can find YouTube where people talk about the cinematography of this, where, for example, like what Josh was saying, where the camera, as people were talking, it follows one person over during the middle of the conversation, then stays with them as other people enter and exit the screen, even though they're not the subject, the other people talking, entering and exiting, which is a wild way to do that. Rather than focusing on the person speaking, you're watching this guy do something completely different. There's just all these little aspects to the movie. So go do go watch a YouTube about it and then go back and watch it again. My daughter, when she first watched it, I think she watched it three times in a week. Because mm-hmm. she was like, can we watch Jaws again? I was like, hell yeah, we can watch Jaws again. <laughs> <laughs> By the third time she had her, I rooting for the shark's banner out. <laughs> Who, who is his, his name right? is Bruce, and you will give him the respect he deserves. <laughs> anyway, Jason, you have anything to say about Jaws? 
Okay, so who is this Steven Spielberg? <laughs> he's just a hack. Don't worry about it. He's a one, he's a one-hit wonder. <laughs> Jaws is definitely a transformational film. This is the new Hollywood area that we spoke about before. Yeah. Where young untested directors like Spielberg and Coppola and Scorsese were getting a shot. They were changing the landscape of cinema at the time and this is definitely one of the the high watermarks of that era. And some of it happens to be, like Josh said, just by happenstance, the mechanical yeah. shark didn't work. So you wind up with you know just a old horror movie style, see it from the point of view of the shark and not actually show the thing. And that that works out great because your imagination is better than anything they can show you on screen. Right. And there's something about the struggle yeah. that helps but- elevate the art because at a certain point, well, between CGI and money, Spielberg could do whatever he wanted. And then you end up with Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. You know, <laughs> like that's, Sad that's the end game. That's, you know. <laughs> I think that was more Lucas, though. Yeah. Well, the Spielberg's which, hands are just as dirty. Uh, yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to. Who said cut and who said action? <laughs> But yeah, the, so so I think a lot like like Jason said, like the having to deal with with issues with the shark and just the challenges of shooting on the water, it was a huge effort. And and Spielberg having to try to command respect as a twenty six, you know, I know yeah. the twenty six year old came into my job, I, <laughs> <laughs> so I can imagine some of these grizzled, you know, people like. I worked with John Ford, damn it. Who's <laughs> this hippie kid? That's, uh, as long as the check clears on Friday, I guess I'll do what he says. <laughs> Another thing, this was Spielberg essentially wanting to do an exploitation film. Yeah. Like, you know, that's that was the entire purpose of this. But Spielberg has a tendency a lot like Lucas, you know, who are passionate about film and knowledgeable about film. They use that knowledge. They use everything that they've seen elsewhere and they build upon it and they do something different, do something better. I think that's what's really cool about the, you know, the new wave or whatever, because, you know, Tarantino, that's his shtick too, right? As I've seen every obscure film that you've never heard of, and I'm going to do an homage to that. And every everything I do is something else. That's why we most of Tarantino's stuff I like, and that's cool. I would disagree with with you, Josh, that I don't think this is Spielberg's very best film. I probably would say that Saving Private Ryan. I would say that that's probably my favorite Spielberg movie. I would even say I like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade better than Jaws. So <laughs> not that it matters much, but I mean, on a, on for, for those keeping score at home. <laughs> for a nostalgic level, yes, but I think technically I'm still on Jaws' side. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> And not by it being a better movie. He's just on the shark side. Right. <laughs> That's, that, which is typical of, of, uh, of Josh and his family. That's, you know. So uh, with that, uh, Jason, uh, do you want to talk about your next movie? Or your first movie, I guess. No, not really. <laughs> I want to go back to a, a movie that is, it's really weird that it was actually made. Not only is the concept like just really out there. But it took a lot of intercooperation between the different movie studios to get it done. And that is 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit. And a down-and-out private detective named Eddie Valiant. Ooga Booga! Every moment they were together... 
was a new adventure in trouble. Hide me, Eddie! It's a motion picture about friendship. Please, Eddie! Don't tell me how you're making a big mistake! Love. <laughs> Compassion. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I yanked your ears. All the time you yanked my ears? Murder. Marvin Acme. A rabbit cacked him last night. Remember, you never saw me. Sex. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. And violence. Gets them every time. You wouldn't have any idea where the rabbit might be? Got a thing for rabbits, huh? The whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. It's a comedy a little different from all the rest. I'm a pig! I'm a tomb! I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. But tell me, Eddie, is that a rabbit in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Touchstone Pictures and Steven Spielberg present a Robert Zemeckis film. We tunes may act idiotic, but we're not stupid. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Uh, this was a, technically a Disney film. I think they actually released it through Touchstone, which is one of the distribution companies that Disney had so that they could release PG-13 oh, yeah. and sometimes R-rated yeah. films without it being under the Disney banner. It's a PG-13 movie. There's a lot of adult situations, everything in it. It's based off of a early 80s novel called Who Censored Roger Rabbit. The concept of the book is they're more like comic strip characters. Okay. And they have word balloons. And so they find, you know, like a word balloon that's been erased and all that kind of stuff. And that's the mystery. But Disney decides to go with cartoons because... They're Disney. Right. And they create this great post-World War II, late 40s, early 50s, L.A., where cartoon characters are real, and they interact with real people, and they film their shorts and all that kind of stuff on movie sets. And Mommy's going to the beauty parlor, darling. But I'm leaving you with your favorite friend, Roger. He's going to take very, very good care of you. Because if he doesn't, he's going back to the science lab. wrong with that take? Nothing with you, baby Herman. You were great. You were perfect. You were better than perfect. Just Roger. He keeps blowing his lines. Roger. What's this? A tweeting bird. Tweeting bird. Roger, read the script. Look what it says. It says rabbit gets clunked. Rabbit sees stars. Not birds. Stars. Can we lose the playback, please? You're killing me. Killing me. But crying out loud, Roger. How many times do we have to do this damn scene? Raul, I'll be in my trailer. Take it a nap! Excuse me, Please, Raul! I can give you stars! Just drop the refrigerator in my head one more time! Drink up on your head 23 times already! I can take it! Don't worry about me! I'm not worried about you! I'm you worried about the refrigerator! You have Toontown, which is where they live. The great thing about this is that they cooperated with so many different studios, including Warner Brothers, so that it wasn't just Disney characters right. in this film, but you get all these other classic Cartoon characters like Betty Boop, and then, of course, the Looney Tune characters, Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of, not necessarily nostalgia, but definitely a, a fan service when you see stuff, yeah, the, Mickey Mouse and Bugs that Bunny. That you grew up with together. as a, you know, 
I guess at that time was what, 30, 40 year old IP, 50 year old, even in some cases, I guess. And this has been an often repeated, like you see that now, even with some stuff that's got like nineties nostalgia where they're, they're doing crossover things with different IP and it has that same effect, right? It's just to drive in those nostalgia viewers, I guess. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. I felt like it served a purpose though. I think it really made the world feel more believable by there being this kind of crossover. And it was very naturalistic. Like it was like lifting K Fabi and wrestling, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny go have a beer together, you know? I, so I, I think it was a little more than that. I think artistically it added to the film. It helped with the world building concept of it because, you know, there's one scene where Bob Hoskins character, who's this film noir gritty L.A. detective, goes to a, a nightclub, a, a speakeasy. And it's cartoon characters performing on stage. And one of the big scenes, it's Daffy Duck and Donald Duck doing like this dueling pianos yeah. bit. It starts off with them just playing against each other. Then, of course, them sabotaging each other, and that escalates. And it's it's a funny cartoon bit. It does create this sense of this could actually be something. You know, when you're watching the film, you're you're allowed to suspend disbelief to fully immerse yourself in this film. And it's it's a fun ride. It's great cast. Like I said, Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom, the main villain, which he's. Christopher loading it up <laughs> all over the screen. And the art direction was done by Richard Williams, who's a, a, a British guy, right? Uh, well, American, I think, or actually, I think hmm. Canadian, but he, he wound up in uh, England, I think his, his final years. But he was considered like the Orson Welles of animation because he would take mainstream jobs to fund his own passion project. And this was one of those jobs. And, uh, I want to say, like, even Spielberg was involved in yeah, this as well I, as a producer. It was a heavy-hitting film at the time. Like I said it was insane, the combining of live action and animation, which isn't a new thing, but the scale on which it was done was astronomical. And I think they were using a lot of newer techniques because um, it certainly looked better than it had ever right. had before. And, yeah. Uh, I was just reading about it. Uh, this isn't something I knew, but it – Apparently, in a uh, CNN documentary about the history of film, Tom Hanks said that he believed this was the most complicated movie ever made. So that's interesting. <laughs> he just didn't understand the plot. <laughs> He's not a smart man. <laughs> how how would that duck talk? <laughs> I appreciated that the film took itself serious yeah. enough. You know, it's a weird thing to say because there are so many cartoony gags and stuff, but they were yeah. all they were all earned, and they were all like even like Hoskins' kind of like exasperation towards them was very grounded and wasn't like real wink wink nudge nudge at the camera. It was in universe. He's like, God, these guys are knuckleheads. Uh, <laughs> So. But they give him a good reason to not like tunes and the fact that when he was him and his partner used to work in Toontown and a tune killed his oh, right. partner. Yeah. And of course they it, it did it in the most cartoon way possible. Piano they dropped a piano yes. on his head. <laughs> and there's there's all stuff like that, you know, when he's at the, the speakeasy as for Scotch on the Rocks, and as the waiter, I think it was a penguin walks away, he's like, I mean ice. <laughs> and then of course when they bring his drink it's rocks. It's actual rocks in his glass. Just punny gags and stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, because uh, cartoon logic as well. Right, and but, it's like he was engaged enough as like a real person in this real story to catch himself, you know, that to understand that like things are different here. <laughs> the first time I saw this movie, I probably was too young to get it or to enjoy it because I don't remember liking it the first time I saw it. And I watched it again probably when I was in college, and, I, and that's when I it clicked, right? I got, I got all the gags and all the, the raunchy humor, basically. <laughs> you know? It wasn't something that I realized had the cultural impact it wasn't until later that I realized how like universally loved this movie is. That, man, I, I remember it being, and I'm not, I mean, we're not that much older than you, but I remember it being a big deal and like pretty much dominating the landscape yeah. for quite some time. That's crazy. It also brought back like the concept of the short subject cartoons, right. mm-hmm. which had disappeared in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Disney started making Roger Rabbit cartoons again to put in front of their releases. And there was like hype for those too. Cause yeah. I remember there was, um, I think there's one that was going to premiere before honey. I shrunk the kids. I want to mm. say, but it was like whatever film it was like, that was part of the billing. And like, it's happened a couple of times in the, in the past 10 or 15 years, but it was like at this movie, You'll see. It's going to okay. start with a with a real Roger Rabbit short, and like people were stoked. That's really interesting. I, I don't remember any of that from my time. It's like when people bought tickets to the, go the see like what like Armageddon yeah. or whatever to see the see the Phantom preview, Menace preview, yeah. and then they as left. soon as the preview was over, yeah, I, I was one of those people actually. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, why? Why would you ever say that out loud? <laughs> uh, I was, uh, I was wrong. <laughs> it's it, here's the thing. It's important for our listeners to know that that we are not as perfect as we sound on the air. <laughs> we have to sometimes. <laughs> I am. Speak for yourself, man. It's very interesting. It pays tribute to the history of animation. Like Mel Blanc came in and did the Looney Tune characters that he had done since the beginning. But they actually had the original voice of Betty Boop come in and do her bit. And she was like 80 some odd years old at the time. She died doing, doing the recording. <laughs> <laughs> it's because Josh slipped up behind her and strangled her. <laughs> it's for the the cut Betty Boop uh, snuff film scene. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got Disney, you got Looney Tunes, like I said, Betty Boop, but also like Woody Woodpecker. Like they threw in as many recognizable cartoon characters that people in the late eighties would have recognized. Cause even if you didn't grow up in the time that like some of those cartoons were out, you saw them growing yeah. up as a kid. Cause they were cheap for your local TV right. station to put them they on were in the, the cultural water well, it, stream. Like you knew what they were in, in the yeah. cooperation and sharing of the IP. I mean, it's like, that's as big as like Sony and Marvel yeah. with the Spider-Man yeah. movies. Like, like that's, that is not an easy feat, and it never has been. <laughs> People in Hollywood don't like to share. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Especially making a, a huge movie that would compete against your other films. Right. Yeah. Right. What I was trying to say earlier is I didn't realize it was a huge blockbuster when it came. I didn't know that uh, until much later that it was just like – it was like the thing that everybody talked about around the water cooler, like, Literally, it was the thing that was, people wouldn't st- shut up about. Why do you keep talking about this water cooler? I've never worked in a place with an actual water cooler. You need to get better jobs. <laughs> we had coffee machines. You didn't have a water cooler? No. Huh? 
We drank sink water and we were we were happy think, with that. I think I've had a water cooler every not like every office job I've ever been at. I've had a water cooler. It's interesting. That's probably why you weren't paid as much. Probably, as me. yeah. <laughs> they had to, they had to pay for that. Yeah, water you don't need a water cooler. You had somebody bring you cold water. <laughs> on a, what do you think? My on, a sil- on a silver for? tray. <laughs> I told you not to make eye contact with me. <laughs> This teacup's not porcelain. <laughs> now eat the pieces. <laughs> I, look, I've, I, I work for 18th century British royal. My whole life. I've seen video of those depositions. <laughs> so I'll go next. I want to talk about Josh's favorite movie, which is the 2009 reboot Star Trek movie. You've always had a hard time finding your place in this world, haven't you? Never knowing your true worth, you can settle for a less than ordinary life. Or do you feel like you were meant for something better? Something special? You will always be a child of two worlds and fully capable of deciding your own destiny. The question you face is, which path will you choose? Are you afraid or aren't you? I will not allow you to lecture me. Then why do you stop me? Prepare to fire all weapons. I like this ship. It's exciting. Space is disease and danger. Threat and darkness and silence. Buckle up. The wait is over. I like that movie. Yeah, I thought you didn't. I thought you hated it. So. What, what 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 you going to do now that you dropped that in there to try to try to trip me up? Well, I, I did think you hated it, so I'm surprised that. Uh, no, I enjoyed it quite a bit, actually. So it is. I rewatched it uh, recently, and in sitting through it again, I, I remembered that it, I really do think this is probably my favorite Star Trek movie, even out of the. Early now movie. we're getting into dicey territory. <laughs> it's better than yeah, Nemesis. Oh, yes. I mean, it's. It's better than most of the generation yes. films. Let's be uh, yeah. honest. It's better than uh, what was the one where they they let all those people die because insurrection. insurrection. Was, yeah, it was was horny for one girl. Yeah. <laughs> that that was that was a pretty morally bankrupt. Film. And like <laughs> generations was no for me. I mean, it was okay, but oh god, you know, like there were, no generation. Generations had the one the one line: "Time is the fire in which we all burn." Other than that. Garbage. It that one was pretty much written by committee, yeah. though. Yeah. So anyway, Nem- I mean, Nemesis had the same issues, but yeah, yeah. There, trust me, there are definitely better Star Trek podcasts, <laughs> <laughs> such as. Yeah. What can you tell us about one, Josh? Uh, Green Shirts podcast is great, and Open Pike mm-hmm. Night, friends of ours. Uh, run both of those. I've been on both those shows. Maybe one day y'all will grace there. I would, yeah. I need presence. to get over to Open Pike Night. If correct me if I'm wrong, they're having a bit of a run there over with some oh, with some celebrity back. guests, and I think they they got Andy Weir coming on now, and that's uh, the the writer of the Marching. That ain't yeah, uh-huh. and we've got you. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the 
to the plot line here. I particularly like whenever I sat down to rewatch this, it did a really good job of balancing. I saw this in theaters when it came out. The first intro scene were or the very, very beginning of the movie where they do the cold open and they're playing the, the classic sort of the Star Trek tune, but it's not exactly what you remember. It's kind of in the same theme and they show the exterior of, of the ship. And it wasn't the Enterprise uh, in the opening scene. It was the uh, Kelvin, the USS Kelvin. The comms and the, the classic 1960s uh, noises from the machine and the computer. And it, mm-hmm. it was just, oh, this, you know, like I was in the theater. I was like, this is, if they do nothing else right, they got this part right. It was just really cool. And then it didn't let me down. I remember being this, the whole thing was a great ride. And there was these little things like the red shirt guy getting tagged and getting sucked into that flame. Like you knew it was going to happen and then they did it. Like, you know, it wasn't supposed to be, it wasn't like, haha, the guy died, but it was like, aha, see what you did there. You know, like, <laughs> you know, they had this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, they're nitpicky points, yeah. but as far as like a summer blockbuster, that's a great it summer is. blockbuster film. It was action packed. It didn't, it also didn't require you to be a, for it was good, like mindless that, fun. Yeah. Somebody to like me that's like super nitpicky. It's like, yeah, I can find some stuff that bothered me, but it didn't bother me enough to not enjoy the film also the only star Wars, or only star trek movie that's won an academy award for technical but it did win it nonetheless i think this is a great movie too for somebody who's not a not particularly a star trek fan like it gives all those easter eggs and the and the fan service for a lot of stuff if you're like if you know enough to enjoy it if you get it you get it Right, like Scotty talking about Admiral Archer's dog, you know, all the all the Star Trek nerds, yeah. those dirty, filthy scum <laughs> jumped up and screamed. <laughs> those low lives with nothing else to do but watch Star Trek all the time. That was people worse. Josh oh jumped up the oh highest. My God, that's a mirror in front of me. <laughs> I thought it was a window. That's my Twilight Zone twist. But it, it's also uh, a movie that even if you don't really know anything about the stuff it's just a good action movie it's a good science fiction movie and it's everything that a good sci-fi movie it's a good sci-fi yeah action that's what i mean movie. yeah it's a good sci-fi action movie it's a good action film set in space <laughs> Fair enough. yeah and i actually really like chris pine as kirk i mean i know it's been he's, he's pretty good i think all the cast did did pretty well pine did well for a like a kirk without any discipline yeah, yeah. mm-hmm I think he does that. But Carl Urban smashed Absolutely, it out Absolutely, 100%. Probably one of the best recasting in history, honestly. Yeah, yeah. he loves Star Trek. And, mm-hmm. you know, he did DeForest Kelly justice. On the, well, the stuff that they that they added was like, it was very on yeah. brand. Like like how he got his nickname. I don't need a dog. Yeah. Need, Damn it, I am a dog. You need to get back to your seat. I had one in the bathroom with no windows. I suffer now. from aviophobia. It means fear of dying. Sir, for your own safety, sit down or else I'll make you sit down. Fine. Thank you. This is Captain Pike. We've been cleared for takeoff. I may throw up on you. I think these things are pretty safe. Don't pander to me, kid. One tiny crack in the hull and our blood boils in 13 seconds. Soul flare might crop up, cook us in our seats. And wait till you're sitting pretty with a case of Andorian shingles. See if you're still so relaxed when your eyeballs are bleeding. Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. Well, I hate to break this to you, but Starfleet operates in space. Yeah, well, I've got nowhere else to go. The ex-wife took the whole damn planet in the divorce. Left is my bones. 
like that, like, I laughed my head off at that line, even though like my Star Trek brain was going, "That's not why he's called that. He's an old sawbones." <laughs> that's my Star Trek right. voice. That's when when I'm on when I'm on green shirts. That's how all I talk the time. all the time. <laughs> Captain Jellicoe. <laughs> Uh, you gonna survive? Yeah, man? I'm gonna make some uh, brick pick T-shirts that says "That is my Star Trek voice." <laughs> <laughs> it's weird to me. It's that was movie's almost 15 years old. It just it doesn't. It's this one of those. It just doesn't feel like it's that old to me. Like it. 2001 to 2023 is a year. <laughs> it's like it's all like time lost all meaning. It all happening it's, now. It's, you're, like, you're like a local <laughs> pop radio station. We're playing today's what is it, 80s, 90s, and today. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm starting to believe more and more in that theory that everything happens all at once. It's just perception. <laughs> it's time to, okay, yeah, yeah, no, this, is, this isn't this is older than this. I just perceived it different. I thought you were going to say there's the, the theory that the world ended in 2012. <laughs> we're all we're dead. All experiencing brain uh, death. And that's why nothing new has happened since 2012. There's no new movies. <laughs> just reimaginings. <laughs> No, that's just how I feel when I do this podcast with you. Two. Yeah, <laughs> the endless now of this podcast will go on forever. I think the big thing about this was came out early May, and it wasn't immediately like a huge opening, but it very, very quickly gained steam and became a huge. I mean, it was marketed as a blockbuster, but it was the early first couple of weekends were not very successful, and then the word got out and it took off. The straights didn't want to go see it. They had to let the nerds and go. You mentioned and that it was good. Be the canary in the Basically, coal mine. Yeah, I, I suspect that's actually the truth. I think that it was probably, you know, the diehards went the first couple weekends and then like the normals got out there and were like, oh, this is actually okay. So when I came out and I said, Orion's weren't in Starfleet at that time. Kirk couldn't have like they said, Oh, this must be a good movie. Cause that guy's that guy sure yeah. is upset about a green skinned person. This is totally lore breaking and I just don't Josh is part of that troop that they actually had to hose down outside of the theater because they're just so angry and foaming at the mouth. They we were protesting, man. It was like a sick that wasn't, dogs. That wasn't why they hosed them down, Jason. It was the smell. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Alienate your fan base. That's how That's how you build a success. Well, I think uh, you're, you're making fun of me directly, well, so I think that's okay. okay. <laughs> but, but since I'm one of the only people that listens to the show that makes me the fan base, it's like, it's like time folding yeah. in on itself. You know, It's very Star Trek. It's true. But this did revive the Star yeah, Trek, I agree. though. Oh, yeah. A, yeah. It, it kick-started it, for better or yeah. worse. <laughs> I mean, yeah. No, I, I, I wish that they would have continued on making In films. In this with, universe with these, with these people. people, yeah. Just make space action films with those guys. Don't try to reinvent yeah, the wheel. Every three or four years, pump one out. I would have been happy with it. Make, make a little dough. If they'd have done it like a... like. I don't know, like Mission Impossible or or Bond movies where they were just serials mm-hmm. and it was essentially the same yeah. group, core group doing I'd eat that up, man. I, that would have been great. But, you know, we were we don't deserve nice things in this universe because we're on the bad timeline. You may have even been able to conjugate correctly had they come. <laughs> I'd, 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 eat that. I'd done eat I'd that, eat that up. up. <laughs> I think the film was, it, like I said, it was a mm-hmm. fun action film. 
it it had just a sprinkle of Star Trek on it to I think satisfy people. It was a film that I'm glad I watched in the theater, but at the same time, it was like I never felt the need to watch really? it again after I saw that's it. That's crazy. You know, it's in it's in red because well, when I, you sit and you think about it, it's like, well, that's even if you're not a Star Trek fan, it's like well, th- none of this stuff makes sense. Like this dude was being kicked out of the academy, and now he's a captain. Yeah, like, that's how it. does that work? <laughs> you know. Like you said, as as a, as a brain off action yeah. film, it worked. Even yeah. even like typically, like it's something that I should have been mad at. Now they made all the wrong choices in Into Darkness. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely hated every frame of that film. But then, like Star Trek Beyond, I thought was really fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was that was probably my favorite of the three. Yeah. So. Yes, it's definitely the best film. And what gets me, though, is like when I saw J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, which is essentially throwing in Star Wars into Star Trek, it's like, well, this will make him a great director for Star Wars. Boy, was right. I wrong. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I had <laughs> he can kick off a new franchise. He just can't sustain he can't, it. He can't stick. Yeah. That man can't stick a landing yeah, to save his life. No. So. But, I mean, so this is actually one of my in steady rotation movies. It's visually interesting. Like if I want to like go down and have a home theater night where I kick on the sound system and throw something on the big screen, this is one of the movies that I put on because it's fun to watch. It's just a fun movie. Another one. And another one I want to talk about tonight is another one. That's the same for me. It's just in hit. Well, why don't you talk yeah, about so, it? Okay, now? Fair enough. I think I will. <laughs> Heck, it is my podcast. I think I will talk about it. <laughs> Which another visually stunning, you know, kind of epic on the big screen in a dark room with an amazing sound system is Mad Max Fury Road. In this wasteland, I am the one who runs from both the living and the dead. Reduced to a single instinct. Survive. It is by my hand. You arise from the ashes of this world. It is a it is yeah. a very good movie to put a home theater system to its paces. Mad Max Fury Road is a film that probably should not have been made and should not have worked and should not have been popular and yet was on all yeah. accounts. 100%. It defied all logic and reason. They recast Mel Gibson. It took forever to produce. The property was aged. And then it's like, holy crap. Well, <laughs> it's it's like mainlining uh, just adrenaline. Yeah, that's a great. It's funny that you put mainlining adrenaline because it is 
makes you want to go it's, punch somebody. It's right? like it's like when you were a kid and you watch wrestling. <laughs> you, know, you get just, just you got you want to yeah, go punch like, somebody. Like, I don't know, but if your dad was like, "Man, he's like, you know, he's in there frying bologna in the kitchen," and you come in there and just start wailing on him, he's like, "Turn off the wrestling! You're getting all agitated." You know. <laughs> Yet another peak into Adam's childhood. Your dad didn't know what the word agitated. My dad man. didn't know, couldn't afford baloney. <laughs> you getting all shook up like a paint can. <laughs> I can hear your marble rolling around. <laughs> um. You having a conniption that's, over that's there? A, that is a classic. That is a classic line, actually. <laughs> He's having one of them conniptions. That boy's all catawampus having conniptions. I've never heard that in ages. Oh man! Anyway, <clears throat> Fury Road came out in 2015. I did see it in theater. I remember. I think this is one of those I saw like numerous times. It's not like a life-changing film. It's not like a great film, but it is a great blockbuster. <laughs> like, you know, I, would, I would say I it's, would a, say great it's a great film. Yeah, it's not. It's not a complex. That's story, what I mean. Yeah, uh, but that's not the point of it. That's not why it exists. Yeah, right. It's it. It has a solid narrative. Yeah. Essentially, it's a post-apocalyptic chase scene yeah. that lasts two That's hours. That's a great way to put it. It is. Uh, like For those of you who haven't seen it, I would say never watch this on like an airplane screen. <laughs> this, is, this movie needs to be in a, an environment that was made for it. Like I watched it on my iPhone. Your- <laughs> you can't. I felt like Dick Tracy. You can't afford an iWatch. You watch this on your kid's Kindle. <laughs> That actually is a really good description of it. It's, you know, we've talked a lot about the Mad Max world in, in other episodes. It is a, a post apocalyptic thing that I find interesting. For those who care, the Furiosa is set for release May of next year. That'll be May of 2024 if you're listening to our back catalog here. But we'll see. I think it's going to be the blockbuster of next summer, hopefully, if all things go well. And George Miller wrote and directed it. So. He's bringing his happy feet energy to the Yeah, film. I mean, they gave him, basically, they wrote him a blank check and told him to do whatever he wants. And so we'll get to see what that looks like. <laughs> how, how many Australians have to die for George Miller to make a film? <laughs> it's like those New Zealanders in the Lord of the Rings. It's like, I have a real job. I'm a plumber. I can't. And no, get on the horse. But I, I got to go to work. No, get on the horse. <laughs> He's just strapping cameramen to Kawasaki's and saying, Yes, basically. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. It wasn't well received critically by a lot of like people who take themselves too seriously in the media at the time. But in hindsight, yeah, Critics, the, you mean? like film, like <laughs> it has some de- deranged visuals, yeah. so that that art can off-putting. be very off-putting, yeah. like the the Doof Warrior. Homeboy all strapped up to the to the guitar, yeah. crazy face and all. Like that's that's some that's some wild imagery that could turn in the milking, off. like that that whole part. Everybody, everybody liked that. That was, <laughs> I pause it there every time. I don't know what you're talking about on my Kindle on my arm. <laughs> it it is. That's that's fake. <laughs> I was waiting to see if you'd take it. <laughs> it's funny in that dark humor kind of way that I think I really like. And it's got, I don't know. It's just a good film. 
So, Jason, you got anything to say about it? Well, like I said, I already said it's a great film. It is very well scripted, directed, and everything. You know, George Miller, he came across a great idea. It's like he wanted this movie to be able to play across the world and everyone yeah. get it. And so that's why there's so little dialogue. You know, Max doesn't speak. That's a actually lot. a really good point. He, he just kind of grunts and, you know, stuff like that for most of the film. And I think we've, we've pointed out before that, you know, the, there's the concept that Max throughout the versions of the film is more of a legend, yeah. Yeah, a yeah. fairy tale than an actual, you know, one person, because especially, you know, uh, with Road Warriors and Beyond Thunderdome, and I believe also Furiosa, it, his story is being told by someone yes. else. Like after the fact, yeah, it's a it, it's a and it's so, the twisting of us of a man's legend as told from different people's perspectives as they encountered him supposedly, which is just a great way to do storytelling. I think it's it's such a neat it's such a cool thing. Yeah. And what I like about the the film is you know there is CGI, but it's there to enhance. So they do mostly practical effects. Yeah. And practical stunt work for a lot of this, like the guys on the poles bouncing from the cars and all that stuff. Those those are actual like circus right. performers who do all that stuff. It's, and there's just yeah, there's just a there's a feeling of weight to it because it's real. The uncanny valley of CGI, CGI yeah. hasn't been able to overcome yet. Like you just things never seem to have the proper amount of mass yeah. in, in CGI. Yeah. It's like when I was watching some, some new wrestling, uh, seriously. And the, and the guys were like super acrobatic, but it's like, they would like come off the top ropes and hit somebody and they would both bounce up. Like there was no damage done, you know? And so it looked more like an acrobatics act than the simulation of a wrestling match. You know, there was no weight to anything anyone was doing. That's that's how I feel like a lot of CGI comes off, you know, versus somebody's really doing something, they're gonna be winded yeah, or you know they, or they wince appropriately. I don't care I yes. don't care how tough of a stunt guy you are. If you're a background extra and you get clobbered, you're gonna make a facial expression that is and I don't think not that CGI doesn't do that, but they don't do it convincingly yet. When a body falls, it doesn't fall right a lot of times. Like it just doesn't I, I agree with you on that. We're getting really close, though. Well, I, th- I think as far as backgrounds and stuff go, we've gotten there that when they can convincingly recreate a city, because yeah. there'll be there'll be films where you're like, they're like, "All oh, this is CGI," and you're like, "Holy yeah. crap!" I thought that was filmed on location. Yeah. I'd agree with that. But people in motion and animals have not quite got. Have there. you noticed? I w- so I went and saw that Dial of Destiny, the new Indiana Jones movie, which we can talk about on a future cast, but. Uh, the, the big thing about 10 years ago on new TVs was the motion smoothing. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that? Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I've noticed in action movies in the theater now, they're employing that motion smoothing technology on screen from digital protection. They may, they may be. And if so, Tom Cruise is going to come and punch him in it the looks, face. It looks not great. I mean, it's very something wasn't right. It, that, may, that may coincide with there's been a lot of complaints of CGI lately. You may be onto something. There's a secret hidden society of motion smoothers <laughs> in theaters who are cranking it all the way up to you know whatever it is to make it look the 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 smooth and naughty. Well, a lot of it has to do with everything's shot on right. digital yeah. now, mm-hmm. and then on top of that, you know, CGI. You know, one of the things that they were doing 
with stop motion when they're still doing practical effects, they had to figure out essentially how to, to kind of blur the right. image yeah. a little bit because it looked fake just simply moving it frame by frame. They actually had to come up with some make way it, to, to make the arm to distort it have that to make blur it seem that real. makes it look normal. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, and I think that's part of a larger conversation of of frame rate and and resolution and like how much of that is because I believe like that twenty four frames per second, twenty four to thirty frames per second is is the sweet spot for humanity. If that's the the lower end of the threshold. Yeah. But you get up to sixty, like, man. Everything looks weird. Sixty is like is, is in digital is is becoming more and more common yeah. in like at at higher hertz and stuff. So I think like is that because I grew up seeing twenty four frames a second, and then like people coming up that are watching primarily YouTube and stuff like that, are they going to look at twenty four frames a second and say like, oh, this looks all blurry and crap? It look so I don't know. I think well, that'll, that's yet to there be. There was the, the complaint with when The Hobbit yeah. first came out and they had done that high resolution. But, oh, it looks fake. It's like, no, actually, the, the problem is it looks Too like real. it actually looks. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and that's that's the problem. That's like when you watch, you know, the old soap operas that were shot on video. Yeah. And, oh, it looks fake. It's like, no, it's, it's shot more naturally because it's a three-camera setup. And well, it's not, it, you know, a one camera and you, you flatten all the, the shadows and everything with the light. And it, it's also like somebody was talking about watching the, uh, I think it was a Blu-ray of the black hole. And they're like, you could see the strings on the robot. <laughs> it's like, because the resolution yeah. is so much higher. It's like, right. Like, they didn't worry about back that. Yeah, <laughs> because back then, when it, by the time it got projected, you weren't going to see that. Higher resolution means you you start to see like that's not an orc that's a guy yeah, in makeup. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's my cousin Frank. I recognize him. <laughs> I, as much as I hate it, and I think we're not gonna. I think people younger than us are going to adopt the headgear, the Oculus or whatever, and the new Apple thing. I really truly believe that's the way cinema is going to be at some point. Is you're going to consume it that way on your face. And it's going to be wrap around and virtual worlds, and you know what I mean. Rephrase that, please. <laughs> <laughs> we now have to put the explicit tag on this episode. Yeah, with the, with, yeah. man, those carrier models have never looked so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like the the Amazon and, and Netflix app on the Oculus basically simulates a movie theater like you sit down and like there's like chairs all around you and then the big oh i didn't screen. know that that's interesting yeah yeah it's uh, it's 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 very relaxing because i'm like oh god i'm in a movie theater without my kids that's fascinating <laughs> so but so you know eventually there'll be 3d f- there'll be films made specifically for that purpose that you can turn your head left and there's more battle over here that you can't see if you're looking straight ahead. And I think it'll be cool. There's a documentary about that called strange days. This is a bit. Are you, this is, <laughs> I can never tell what's happening right now. <laughs> Cause you said it in a way that <laughs> look it up. It's a, it, it's a okay. movie. <laughs> you've, you've, you're in a simulation right me now. Again. <laughs> Anywho, uh, we'll roll on to to Jason's next film. All right, so my second film is a really big one from 1989. You want to talk about a phenomena. This movie was 
at the very center of the popular zeitgeist at the time, and that is Tim Burton's first Batman film. Don't kill me! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! What are you? Lieutenant, is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? Jack is dead, my friend. You can call me Joker. Wing freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. <laughs> now, this movie, it's, it's a bad adaptation of Batman, mm-hmm. but it's still a good movie. It's an entertaining film, but... This is the only Tim Burton movie I don't hate. Wow. Mr. Chalmette, our, uh, one of our listeners, went to see this film with a headband on that had the bat symbol on it. Just, <laughs> just so he knows that I remember that embarrassing tale he told once. <laughs> Legend has it, he still wears it today. <laughs> The thing is, he wasn't the only one. Like, there were people no. getting the Batman symbol, like, cut into the back of their heads and their hair and everything. Like, for a movie that they hadn't even seen yet. That's crazy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It was like, I think for anybody under 30 that's not listening to this, it was like, it's very similar to the, the hype of Avatar. Like, people showing up to Avatar dressed up as the blue yeah. people. It's like, dude, you haven't even seen the movie. Like, <laughs> Yeah. What are you doing? Cosplaying. And I remember uh, it, it was a big thing before then, but it became a huge thing after Batman did it. And that was like the marketing title ends with like, yeah. McDonald's mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, you know, it'd been done before where you come and get the collector's cup. You know, in the 80s, it was always a glass cup. And then by, you know, 89, it was just a big plastic you know, <laughs> that, you know, would. Would never we call those the good glasses. Yeah. <laughs> get get what that Looney Tunes the, out for the for the good Reverend the here. Cup. Make make sure <laughs> make sure he gets doesn't get Bugs Bunny because he's a he's a cross. That was got that was got a chip in the lip. You don't want that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, McDonald's definitely made their money back off that licensing yeah. fee. Because uh, that that drove so much traffic to them. Batman is such a good example of the, and I don't think, I think that era is gone of like, like the film that has all the, has all the tie-ins and it's got the toy line and it's like, it's just like bubbling up because there was like Batman, Dick Tracy Mm -hmm. for what it was worth. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it had had the same height, but it was the same, like, it was like, the thing, everybody, Roger Rabbit was the same way. I mean, most of yeah. these, like, by the time we get to the mid to late 80s and early 90s, and then the last kind of film that had that feeling to me was, like, the last Jurassic World. And it Where they marketed the crap flat. out of it. It was yeah. everywhere all the time. Right, right. And, and, for, like, a year and, in advance. Was, like, you were seeing previews 12 months out. It yeah. was all sound and fury signifying yeah. nothing. You know, there was, there was, it was like they were going through the motions of like, hey, this is a big, this, because the original Jurassic Park. That big was like too, yeah. Too. Yeah, that's funny. Because um, it was like, it's funny you mentioned that because that was not a movie I would have otherwise seen. I got, I got hyped into it and I was getting four new tires put on. That's how they I was get getting you. four new tires put on a car and I was like the ninth person in the line or whatever. And there was a movie theater across the street. So I went over and caught it. And I was like, I'll go see this movie. And then I was like, what a bunch of crap. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like the worst movie I've ever seen, but I was thinking. 
Oh, Jumbo World. Jurassic yeah, World. Yeah, 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 whatever it was, whatever. Because they'd hyped them for a long time. It was easily a year in advance that they were putting out previews. I haven't really seen anything like that this summer. Like I think that, Avatar I think was it, that it, way it, back it, when the new one came out. They kind of for summer blockbusters, there's been a whole bunch of releases this year, and they've all kind of fallen flat, other than Spider Verse. Um, yeah, we're I, in a different it, yeah. We're in a different time now. As we said before, you know, these huge 200 plus million dollar movies are the Mm -hmm. norm now. Mm -hmm. And they're releasing them every year. It's not not special like it used to be. Right. And that's what I'm saying. I think that those days are, are over. I think, I think we are in a post blockbuster era. I mean, no, because they're still. Big budget movies, they're still making right but hundreds of millions of billions of dollars. They don't have this marketing to it that we saw before, and they don't have they don't have the the cultural cachet. I yeah. think that they did, but they're, well, I they're think still that these. Support, that supports yeah. my point. Like you said, all these movies are now giant, yeah. bloated tentpole movies. So so none of them are. It's like if everything's the same, if everything's a two hundred fifty million dollar movie. There's nothing pulling anything away from the pack, and there are no toy sales anymore, and there are so no. So that's what I actually I uh, want to make a comment on that because I think with the problem, not the problem. I, I I don't honestly think this is a problem. I think it's just evolution of whatever. The point is is that I think we we consume media in such a fragmented way now, and we've talked about this when we were talking about the various streaming services. How it's very easy to find your niche and just stick and stay in that lane now, whereas before before streaming and all the way up into the late 90s, really, whatever's in the theaters is what you saw. <laughs> you could go to Blockbuster and rent your favorite whatever, but it was reruns on cable. There wasn't really anything good on network. And if it was, you ha- it was like set your watch and watch it Thursday nights at 8. Everybody had to see these movies, and they were mostly 30 to $50 million films with the occasional big-budget movie coming out, usually at Christmas and in the summer. And then again, everybody went and saw it because it was marketed the crap out of it. Even if it wasn't made for you, if you were uh, between you know thirteen and thirty, you went and saw this movie because that's just what you did. There was nothing else to do. And now there are so many shows on streaming that you could literally never leave your house and not you could watch new stuff for the rest of your life. Like you know what I mean? Right. And, and most of the, most of the water cooler yeah. talk at work now, they're like. You seen Silo? Yeah. No, I haven't had a chance to watch that yet. You seen From? No, I haven't yeah. had a chance to watch that yet. Right. <laughs> you finished Ted Lasso? No, I'm almost. I just started the last season a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. But you know, the kids are uh, in soccer all night, and <laughs> that's that's why that's why I don't have anything to add to the. So movie. the second point is, I think we mentioned this off air, but I've I've been thinking about something you said recently, which was that. For movie theaters to survive, it's got to be, it has to be quantity over quality. At some point, they're going to have to start making more movies at a lower price point that are more targeted. And not necessarily even quantity because they can keep them in the theaters longer. That's I think that's another but lower but lower budget. I mean like, they gotta stop making these Right, right, right. But like right now it's like so like Indiana Jones. It's like I'm on the fence about seeing see it. it. I'll wait six Go weeks <laughs> and watch it and watch it on streaming. Yeah. It's not that pressing yeah, to me. And I and I and I can wait but you'll I, see, it's like well it's gonna be on streaming and I'll watch but it. But you'll see home. Dune, right? I mean when that comes out, like that'll be a tentpole movie for you, won't it? Is that a play? Yes. 
<laughs> it's loosely ba- based off of a Japanese opera. Yes. <laughs> We're talking about a situation that's really been happening ever since the VCR yeah. became commonplace. You know, the way the movies were, they would run two or three months in yeah. the theater. And then like a year later, a year later, they'd be on HBO yeah. or something like that. And then maybe a year after that, broadcast television might pick it up and do that. It started getting to the point where, okay, well now six months after it's in the theater, it's on HBO. And then three months later, it's on VHS. And then it's, well, three months after it's out of the theater, it's on VHS. So you don't have to wait that long. You know, there's no sense of, well, if I don't see the theater, I'm going to miss it. Well, and then during during COVID, there was the simultaneous release, and it's like, yeah, y'all done let the genie out the bottle, man. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Do you think they'll ever go back? So one of you, was it Jason that was talking about the reason that studios can't own movie theaters? Yeah, they can't be monopolized like that, that top-down monopoly. Uh, I, I can't remember the case, but there was a case in the 40s, because Paramount had Paramount theaters, like in little towns and right. all that kind of stuff. And so just they would just movies. Yeah. distribute their, their own movies to their own theaters and, and keep all the money I'm, and all the profits. It used to be called a monopoly. Now it's called vertical integration. Yeah, so I'm curious yeah. if that would stand today because that actually might be the survival of the theater is that Netflix opens its own. They have a few theaters because they wanted to Oscar stuff, right? Release. They wanted to, yeah, they, they wanted to be eligible. I mean, I think that's kind of the state we're at now though, in the streaming world. World, there's just not a physical presence yeah. and it's not it's not working yeah because there's there's already too many streaming platforms and they're cannibalizing each other i mean i think i just read today that hbo or, or max is going to be licensing out some of their shows to netflix interesting it's just like it's like such a shell game yeah. now because it's like well none of y'all are making money so how, how are you going to buy the rights from another losing property to try to draw more in money yeah it's more just, viewers yeah it's just uh i don't know how this works out well that's it netflix was actually they, i mean they made it work because they had that sense of well if i don't watch it now it's it's going to be gone. You know, that's before they started making all their own shows and everything on there. Right. They had a deep stick. bench of content. Yeah. This was a halcyon day. And it, it rotated out. Those were those for early days of Netflix. Uh, I'm sure you guys were early adopters too, but like when it first started streaming and that worked, like it worked well and you could get pretty high quality video without all the lag and, you know, upload time and all this crap. I remember being like, this is, you know, I actually went like that summer and sold all my DVDs at a used bookstore. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> this is it. This is the future. Future is now, old man. You know, and I never. And don't you feel I foolish? Never, yeah. It's like when you sold Bitcoin at two dollars. Well, a I do in some ways. I mean, I kept my favorite movies, but you know, like the back catalog of all my Hitchcock films and crap. Like you could still find that stuff, but. I don't know. Like, what is the end result of all that? Like, how would how will it consolidate in say twenty years? Is this going to be like this forever, or is it? Disney's going to buy everything and be in control of everything, and then you're going to pay a subscription to be able to think about it in your brain. And it'll be uh, probably like six hundred dollars a month or something ridiculous, and you know, if you don't like it, you don't have to have it. <laughs> 
And then somebody's going to be like, well, I'm going to create this over-the-air station that just plays <laughs> things that, that are pre-programmed that you have be like, oh, my God, it's amazing. I want to open a store <laughs> that puts all the media on thumb drives, and then you could come in and borrow it for a fee and take it home. <laughs> but you got to return it in three days. <laughs> we should do that. That'd be, <laughs> What could go wrong? So... <laughs> Anyway, I don't know if we talked about Batman enough or not, but it it is. <laughs> I think we've talked about Batman like three times. The now, original, though. the eighty nine one. I don't know. Yeah, uh, we've mentioned it. We've never actually it's, talked about it. Is it. a it is an okay Tim Burton movie. I don't like some of the departures from, like you said, it's a bad like. It's a bad adaptation, of, adaptation yeah. and yes. it's a fun movie though. And it's it's rare for me to say that in about a Tim Burton film. Of course, it has Elfman patched to it for the musical score, and Prince. Right? Didn't he do the music? Why'd you say his name yeah. like he was a Batman villain? Elf Elfman. <laughs> Danny Elfman doing the music because he and Tim Burton are married in some states. That musical maniac. <laughs> Prince was under contract with Warner Brothers Records at the time, so I think right. that's why. How Prince got involved in it because, like, at no point was Tim Burton like, let's right. have Prince do a soundtrack. For no, it. in fact, I think he and Danny Elfman did not like that at all. Well, Danny Elfman walked away from the project because they wanted him to work with Prince on the score. And he was like, "What what's going to happen is because he's Prince and I'm just Danny Elfman, he's going to write it all and I'm just going to conduct it. This is so probably. I'd, Yes, yeah, so uh, I don't want to do that. And he walked away, and then they called him back later and says, "Okay, you, you're doing the entire score yourself." Interesting. So, but we are they, including the bat dance. Yeah, Jack Nicholson in this is Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Yeah. Yep. It, I mean, it was just his. <laughs> that's not a knock, but that's you yeah, know, it's just yeah, him. That's it's what just, it was. Yeah, I yeah, that's. Well, he was a fan of the comic. Oh, interesting. Book. I think he actually lobbied for the role. Hmm. He wanted to do it because I think Tim Burton's original choice is Brad Dourif. Oh, I didn't know that. Brad Dourif would have done a fantastic yeah. job, by the yeah, way. Yeah, he would have been awesome in it. But, uh, yeah, Nicholson got it. But the big thing about Nicholson was his deal. So Nicholson, like, gets a percentage of all Joker merchandise because of his deal for this movie. Like, in perpetuity? Yes. Wow. That was smart. Joke's on you, Warner Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They wanted him because they wanted a big name attached to it because, of course, Michael Keaton was Batman big, that was controversial, that right? Drew the ire yeah. of yeah. everybody. I didn't know that. And now he's everybody's favorite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was very similar to the Bruce Willis can't do an action film. He's a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, was, it was that level of yeah. ire and then that yeah. level of, oh, no, no, he was great. It looks fantastic. But it's it's still kind of weird in places like John Peters, who was the producer. He was also dating Kim Basinger at the time, so that's why she's in the movie. <laughs> that's funny. And Vicky Vale had a, a smaller role than what actually appeared in the film. Like he just kept increasing her scenes and lines as the film went on to the point that he built the cathedral set without telling oh, wow. anybody. Okay. And there's like use the set, and <laughs> they are doing like the. Jack Nicholson pulling her up the the bell mm-hmm. tower stairs, and they were shooting that. And Jack Nicholson just stops in the middle of it and looks and says, "Tim, what the <laughs> hell are we doing? What what's this about?" And Tim's like, "We'll figure it out later." 
We'll fix it in post. Yeah. That tracks. Anyway, it is. It's a fun. It's not in my rotation. I've, it's a I've movie. watched it. I watched it in re- in retrospect for this, and I prefer the sequel, Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he meant Batman Forever. Or Man, Batman. You mean Batman and Robin? <laughs> no, the uh, with Dan DeVito as as the that big is one. pretty good. That is, is uh, that is a really good casting. That, that yeah. has that has some that that is a very very Tim has some very very yes. Tim Burton moments in it, but that are they're so great. Just him eating the raw fish and stuff and being so <laughs> gross. Uh, you can't help but love it. Yeah. It all culminated with Joel Schumacher, <laughs> the the pinnacle of the bat verse. <laughs> Fair enough, I suppose. <laughs> of all no. the Joker origin stories, this is probably my least favorite. Is is the one where he falls in the bat? Uh, my least favorite are all. You of don't them. like? Uh, I like the. I don't the jo- like Joker having an origin. I think he works better not having what, an origin. Wasn't there? Um, which, by the way, this origin actually does kind of come from the comic books, other than the fact that he's the one who murdered Bruce right. Wayne's family. Like that's that's another thing that Hollywood constantly did that always pissed me off. That like everything had to be too right. interconnected. Can, yeah, isn't there? There's some one of the Batman media is that there's like a bunch of different in the same thing where Joker isn't that the Joker where he tells like eight different versions of the story. That comes from the the Killing Joke, written by Grant Morse or not Grant Morse, sorry, uh, okay. Alan Moore. Yeah, he tells the story, and it's actually based off of a 1950s origin story that they did okay. for the Joker. But then at the end, it's like, well, that, I remember it that way sometimes, and other times yeah, I remember I that. You're talking about Heath Ledger's. Is that the one? Tells yeah. how, you know how I got you know how I got these scars. And it, it tells you each story time. Every yeah, time. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, they they pulled that from a, that's the what Killing I was trying joke. to figure out which it's, one. You're right, Josh. That's the one I'm trying to think of is. Yeah, but and that that was very that was very. Old yeah, point. I liked that the best yeah. of the way he did that. You know, where yeah. they don't actually tell you, right? That's the really cool Heath Ledger's, I think, portrayal of it even better than the than Joaquin Phoenix, in my opinion. I don't think Heath Ledger could ever be. Yeah, I I, I think his. Uh, I recently rewatched that, and he. Um, it was incredible. He plays the role with with a with a great intensity and. Like also like you think he doesn't have a plan, but then he has a plan. But you think that maybe that wasn't the plan. He like it's like it really is. He's just chaos, and you never really know what's going on. He's not chaos. He presents himself as chaos, but he's not. He's he's very meticulous, right? right. And everything done. He's he's very meticulous and manipulative, and that's that's the point of him that he he creates chaos. But he himself is not chaos. I think he does a very good deconstruction of the character, which is what Nolan's Batman films were. Nicholson is very much a comic book character. And they did a lot of the gags from the TV show in the movie. Like, uh, not directly, but it had that, like, slapsticky quality to it in the in the 89. New and improved Joker products! With a new secret ingredient! Smiley. Now, let's go over to our blind taste test. Love that Joker. Where's it coming from? I don't know. Uh-oh. He don't look happy. He's been using Brand X. But with new Joker brand, I get a grin. A gimp. 
And again. Oh, 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 oh. That luscious tan. Those ruby lips and hair color. So natural, only your undertaker knows for sure. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Where can I get these fine new items? Well, that's the gag. Chances are you bought them already. <laughs> Love that joke. So remember, put on. But yeah, the yeah, hand buzzer, kind of yeah, and all that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's. Oh well, yeah, it it was, but that was at a time too when like that was the template for Ghostbusters and superhero yeah. movies and stuff. They were very, they were very campy. Yeah. Think about it now, like like that movie still is very campy, but at the time it was like, oh my god, this is a dark and right. serious funny, Batman. Yeah. And yeah. like like, dude, no. <laughs> But at the time, it was like, is this too dark for kids? This is not like a comic book. This is, <laughs> this is really serious, dark stuff. It's, uh, <laughs> That's funny. So, anyway. And then we get Zack Snyder. Right. You know, and it's like, oh, no. Okay. My bad. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> so, uh, for my last movie, I want to talk about another Danny Elfman <laughs> film, <laughs> which is uh, 1997's Men in Black. From now on, you will have no identifying marks of any kind. You are no longer part of the system. We are the men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Series 4, de-atomizer. That's what I'm talking about. Noisy cricket. I feel like I'm going to break this damn thing. Oh, it gets better. Dad, we have a bug. Unlimited technology from the whole universe, and we cruise around in a Ford POS. Fasten your seatbelt. See, now we got to work on your people skills. Columbia Pictures and Amblin Entertainment present... I knew it. This is an alien, and you guys are from some government agency trying to keep it under wraps. No. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones. I'm gonna count to three. He'll do it, Jeeves. One. I'm telling you, that man does not look stable. Two. He's always crazy. Why don't you get a massage or take a cruise? Three. Do you have any idea how much that stings? Will Smith. What the hell are you? Your world's gonna end. In a new film from the director of The Addams Family and Get Shorty. Men in Black, protecting the Earth from the scum of the universe. You know how to use these things? No idea whatsoever. It was a true July blockbuster. came out on the 2nd of July. I think you mean Barry Sonnenfeld. I know you were joking. No, it's, like, no. <laughs> Danny, no Elfman, did, Elfman the music. did the music for Men in Black. Oh, he did, he did, he did yeah. music? Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks for playing along, Josh. Did he walk off when Will Smith wanted to do That's a song a, for it? Yeah, because he was only going to be the, the. Or was it just Prince he had to beef Prince with? Just Prince he had a beef with. That's it. So by by yeah, ninety seven, okay. he'd gotten over that that whole you know beef. Well, I think by ninety seven, he knew he knew that Will Smith wasn't going to try to write an entire score. Prince would have. <laughs> Fair, fair point. So, yeah, Prince would have <laughs> actually written a score. That is true. Actually, that is a, and it would have been, been awesome. 
anyway, made five hundred eighty nine million on a ninety million budget. It was a huge, huge movie, and it was like what you described before with all the marketing. With I think mm-hmm. I want to say Taco Bell was the one for this one. Was that right? Man, that's taxed my memory a little bit. But it was a it had a huge tie in with. I think Red's Pest Control too was a big sponsor. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's why I said it. Yeah. <laughs> this is a movie that on rewatch holds up for me. Mm-hmm. And it's got yeah. a lot of very, very clever writing. Even the little things like casting, just the casting of Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, and then using Agent Smith and Jones as the as the bit. That's just, I remember when that happened in theater, I, la- I was the only person in the movie theater who laughed out loud at that joke. <laughs> when, they, when they played that, because it, it was funny to me, you know, nobody else was like, oh, I don't, I don't get it. But <laughs> It was a movie that it was weird and funny and unlike anything that was out right at that moment. I think one of the differences between like that and in newer films is it was fun yeah. and it allowed yeah. itself to be fun. Like there's not you don't see a lot of joy in movies anymore. Like blockbusters now are like Logan. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, oh look, high, yeah. Wolverine's dying. Hooray. High stakes, high drama like, is yeah. But there's no just crazy, see, like the cricket gun, right? And stuff like yeah. that. It's like just a just a gas, man. Yeah. You, you know, <laughs> and it's also the perfect length. It's just it's yeah, ninety it, minutes. It is. Mm-hmm. It's an hour and a half. You know, if it if it went five minutes over, it would probably wear yeah. itself thin. That's a that's a hundred percent. It actually has some poignant moments in it. Uh, Tommy, yep. I'll never forget Tommy Lee Jones saying, "A person is smart. Nor, People yeah, that's, are stupid." And you're like, you're like. Yeah. Yes, Tommy Lee Jones, that's my God. You just defined my <laughs> philosophy for life. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that is a universal truth in this stupid movie. <laughs> Great little yeah. sight gags, too, because there's the, at the start, where Edgar, or the alien in the yeah. Edgar suit, you know, wants sugar water, and so he just keeps pouring mm-hmm. sugar into water. And then when Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith show up, agents J and K, to talk to her and she gives him lemonade and Will Smith takes a drink and spits it back in. You, there's no there's sugar, no in the sugar house. for the lemonade. <laughs> it's, <yeah. laughs> it's, it's, it's a great little sight gag that if you're not That's paying what, attention, yeah, it, you're going to yeah, miss it's it. A, it's a really, really well scripted. Like the whole testing scene is him dragging that chair so over. Yeah, it yeah. does so much character development and so much, it packs so much in and it's funny and entertaining like and it really plays to Will Smith's strengths. Yeah. Like to a T. Like the what he's talking about why he shot the little girl. May I ask why you felt little Tiffany deserved to die? Well, she was the only one that actually seemed dangerous at the time, sir. How'd you come to that conclusion? Well, first I was gonna pop this guy hanging from the street light, and then I realized, you know, he's just working out. And how would I feel somebody come running in the gym, bust me in my ass while I'm on a treadmill? Then I saw this uh snarling beast guy. And I noticed he had a tissue in his hand. I realized, you know, he's not snarling. He's sneezing. You know, ain't no real threat there. And I saw a little Tiffany. I'm thinking, you know, eight-year-old white girl, middle of the ghetto, bunch of monsters, this time of night with quantum physics books. She about to start some shit, Zed. She's about eight years old. Those books are way too advanced for her. If you ask me, I say she's up to something. And to be honest, I'd appreciate it if you eased up off my back about it. Or do I owe her an apology? That was a good shot, though, right? 
I don't know who else could have pulled that off other than Will Smith because it yeah. is just like absolutely perfect for him. It is just it's a great scene. It's a great little bit into the world itself because like mm-hmm. all these military guys, they just pull out the gun and start shooting. And he's the only one who kind of looks at it and is like, what yeah. the hell is all he's, this? He, right. You know, he, he's he the only one that before actually, he acts. That's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he's able to to kind of defy convention and get things done, like moving moving the table over right. or whatever. Yeah. And it's like it's just such a master class in entertaining and moving the plot along. It just like so many things are happening. And it's, it's 90 minutes. Nothing's wasted in the film. It's no, really, really no, there's great. there's no point where this film feels like it slows down or stops. Yep. It doesn't go so fast that it loses you either. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not it's not a super complicated plot, right. no. and there's not and there's even a twist kind of at the end. But it's not like mind shattering. It's just a nice, neat little story, and everybody it plays to their strengths. Yep. It, it just worked, and like I said, and, and overall. I just don't know how that film would go over today if there had never been a Men in Black. I guess Men in Black International tells us that well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the problem yeah. because it's like, you know, like now when we go to the theaters and I think, I mean, like, honestly, the Little Mermaid kind of had this problem. A lot of it was like super serious and dour. Why am I getting hyper realistic, washed out scenes in the Little Mermaid? Right. Like, this is. That's how I came. Yeah. Was, it looks like Logan, but it's the Little Mermaid. It's just like that's that's bizarre. And Josh stood up in the theater and says, "I'm not bringing my daughters to see this when I get back home." I started just picking up little kids and hucking them towards the exit. Get, get out of here! You're ruining cinema. This was written by Ed Solomon, who is the same guy who wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is also one another. Yeah super tightly written yeah. 90 yeah. minutes. It's, it's, it's worth mentioning because it is, I, I don't off the top of my head know other things that he's written, but, but I do know those two films and I think that that, that that is right. It's, he's a very good screenwriter. Maybe I should look up and see what, maybe I'll like his other stuff too. I don't know, but, um, kingdom of the crystal. Oh skull. <laughs> you let me down. He must've had a stroke between then and now. <laughs> he got, he's like that guy that, uh, that you, that Phineas gauge, the guy that got the railroad spike through his head and his whole personality changed. <laughs> and I don't know. Let me look it up. I don't think he, I think the problem is I don't think he wrote the new one that came out, the international. I'm sure that was written by committee. It looked like a, Cash in an IP cash in Men in Black International, written by Art Markham and Matt Holloway, directed by Gary Gray. So I think the problem wasn't that the people, the audiences weren't ready for it; it's that it wasn't good. <laughs> it's, you know, if if you brought a lead, you, you didn't have to look up stuff online to be able but to I, tell. I just, I'm, well, yeah. I just want to see if Ed Solomon had a Phineas Gage moment or not. Like if he'd written this one too. That would vindicate that or validate, I should say, that opinion that Men in Black International wasn't funny haha like Men in Black Original was. Like it didn't have that. And even Men in Black 2 was okay. I mean, it wasn't great. It wasn't the crap that International was. There's a funny anecdote about Mr. Solomon. He was he was accused of trying to mansplain the film <laughs> on Twitter. Oh, I forgot about that. And, yeah, uh, I forgot about that. <laughs> They said, they, somebody said, we don't need no white man's mansplanation. And he's like, 
I wrote movie. the movie. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's that is true. <laughs> that whole yeah. If you if for people listening, if you've not seen that interaction, go look at the screen clips of that. It is funny. <laughs> Anywho, Jason, do you have uh, one more? For My us? bad. <laughs> you have one to, to wrap us up with, Jason? I'm going to finish with the 1996 film and probably the best Michael Bay movie ever made. That's The Rock. His name is John Mason, British national incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain. He does not exist. Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. Hostage. 81 tourist. The Rock's a tourist attraction. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. You go talk to him. Me? Yeah. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, FBI. I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Now, all that stands between a city and a disaster... The power of this chemical is way beyond anything you can imagine. That's why you're coming with us. ...is a man who's never seen combat. You're a chemical freak. <laughs> I'm a chemical super freak, actually. And another who's been out of action for 30 years. Show us some of the blueprints. I can't. My blueprint was in my head. Fortunately, some things you'll never forget. But don't worry, it'll all come back to me. From Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the producers of Top Gun and Crimson Tide, and Michael Bay, the director of Bad Boys. Welcome to The Rock. We got visitors. Sean Connery. I'm sure you're ready for this. Do my best. Your best. Losers always whine about their best. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Listen, I'm just a biochemist. I drive a Volvo. Beige one. So what do you say? You cut me some friggin' slack. Ed Harris. Fire. like about this film it has its michael bay isms but they're not like turned up to 11 like everything else he's made after yeah, this that's film. Interesting. i didn't know he did this movie and i wouldn't if you put that on a trivia question i'm like no way but yeah <laughs> that's interesting you're not a baniac. i'm not a maniac <laughs> you got nick cage and sean connery yeah. in a film both of them chewing up scenery and then you've got ed harris on the other end kind of balancing it out yeah. the characters are kind of believable you know they got good motivations. It's a fun action film. It doesn't take itself too seriously. You get a lot of nice little quips back and forth between Connery and Cage. It's entertaining without being that Michael Bay over the top. Like, you know, everything blows up. Yeah, he kept his um, 
the worst bits of him contained. And I don't know if that was due to production. It's also like one, one of his earlier films. I've heard two different theories about Michael Bay and why he makes the movies he does on the internet. Uh, one of them's utter crap. The other one, I believe, the first one's like, oh, he doesn't want to make big blockbuster movies, so he's, he's trying to make bad movies so that he can make regular movies. Like, that's not how Hollywood works. <laughs> no. If you, if you make... <laughs> If they give you $200 million to make a movie and your movie bombs, they're not going to give you any more money to make right. any other movie. You're, you're done. <laughs> it, it works the opposite way. They'll like, you, let you make a smaller movie if it makes you happy and you keep coming back and making the big budget movies. But another one that I, that I actually kind of believe is that he doesn't really like these movies, but he's he's making them because... Hollywood will shovel the money out for him. And he knows like the people that go see him. And so not only does he make it specifically for them, but he also kind of tools on them in his movies. Cause I think there was one of the transform movies. I, I don't know which one he has a guy who like has like a card in his wallet with like Texas's like Romeo and Juliet law. I think it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone with yeah, Mark, so, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, one of them. Who cares? <laughs> uh, but yeah, which it, which is a law that, yeah, which allows a dude who's like over 18 to date a 16-year-old girl. If they're within a certain range. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's that's exactly who's watching Michael Bay's <laughs> movies. <laughs> Yeah, because that what's that was such a bizarre choice. Because like, oh yeah, the girl was like seventeen. It's like, is it that hard just to say she was eighteen? Like, like that you have to have this cockamamie explanation of Romeo and Juliet laws and all kinds of stuff, like taking up valuable screen time. That was a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> That's. That's so the audience can see themselves in the film. It's funny when I do it. When you do it, it's just sad. <laughs> it comes across as, as cruel and churlish. Hurtful. This is just hurtful. <laughs> There's malice behind your smile, sir. Here there are daggers in men's smiles. Oh, there's a little Shakespeare for you, punk. <laughs> The Rock used to say that before he do drop the people's elbow. <laughs> that was a different Rock. That was rock a different Rock. Know. We're talking about the rock, now. Yeah, The Rock didn't know Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm more willing to believe that that's the reasoning behind Michael Bay's, you know, the way he makes films is simply because he, he knows that's his role in Hollywood now, and he's just he going to it. if he's got to do it, he's going to have his own little fun with it. So. That's, I agree with that. I think that directors, by and large, have figured out that they've got to distinguish themselves by having. Look, if you put me in a movie theater with a modern Michael Bay movie and told me nothing about it, and I sat down within ten minutes, I'd be like, "Did Michael Bay direct?" <laughs> like, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, there's something yeah. to be said about that. You have an auteur kind of signature, right. even if you don't yeah. like it, and even know? if it's a bit. Like it's like Wes Anderson. I hate yeah. that dude. But it has a but it has <laughs> but, a distinctive you know. so does Tim Burton for that mm-hmm. matter. I can spot a Tim Burton film from a mile away, but that's okay. I mean, we don't all have to like the same things, but I think that's I think that what we're seeing is the consolidation of 
media in general and when it comes to these big films because they don't have they're not taking the risks on the small directors anymore like they did with spielberg and jaws you don't well, yeah we, well i mean you got a 259 yeah. million dollar you got to be able to produce you make your damn money yeah. back because otherwise the studio's in big trouble. exactly well not only that but what you're seeing also is even when they get somebody with a distinctive voice and everything that's quashed because you have to make this movie this studio yeah that's, I mean, that's Edgar really what's been happening man, man. With, with, yeah. yeah marvel yeah. and star wars and you know just any of these things like you get these guys who've been the the darling of the indie scene and then you give them big budget movies and they're just they're failing yeah, that's fair you know, because they're, they're not allowed to be themselves they're not allowed, yeah they're not allowed the to express system. themselves creatively in the way that made them unique it's driven by committee, like you're saying. I think it's a big – I actually think that's a big problem with a lot of these Marvel, Star Wars, pipeline films. Not just, And it's not just a Disney thing. It's all of the like, redundancies and repeats and whatever. It's become formulaic to the point where it, it – so there was this thing back in the late 60s, early 70s. I heard this interview with Neil Diamond where he was talking about how he was writing songs for other bands. The record labels would tell him – all we care about is we want you to find the number one hit this week. We want you to write a song that sounds exactly like that. We don't want any creativity. We don't want any like side quests. We want you just to replicate the song of the week, and we want to keep doing that and making print and cash. And he was like, but I wasn't very good at that. <laughs> so, so I, and yet he made a whole but career. Like, of but that. I made a whole. That's exactly what he said. But I sold my songs to the monkeys, and I sold my songs to these. You know, anyone that would pay me cash, I didn't care. I'd take the money. And he says it wasn't until I was able to get enough money to do my own thing that I became what I was. And I think what's happening in Hollywood is that they put these such these huge budget big bets. They micromanage the project to the point where yeah, it's gonna it's gonna yield the result you want, but it's not good movie. It's not good film. We used to have, in my opinion, three to five good movies a year that were like excellent nine out of tens. And I would say I haven't seen a nine out of ten movie since Dune. Well, I think a lot of it is coming a victim of your own success. Yeah, that's fair. So, like, take the Marvel films, like when Iron Man came out and there's after credit scene, yeah. you know, and there's like, and there's, you start getting all these glimpses of like him showing up at the end of Hulk. Let me tell you about the Avengers initiative. It's like, oh, my God. But now it's to the point, like, you make a movie and they're like, okay, we've got the Marvels coming out in December. So we've got to connect to this and we've got to connect to the Canadian. There's no room because all these things that were once it was like. Fun because it flowed interestingly. Right. And it was was a new thing. And now it's the only thing because that's what was so successful. And that's why you'll you'll never get another Infinity War uh, or or Endgame. You just you just won't. No, that's that's it's just it was so, a genie in the bottle. Uh, really, yeah. Marvel they would never do it. But the greatest thing that that they could have done with the Marvel property is end it. shelve end the it. movies for three or yeah, four years. End. Not end it, or, but shelve shelve it for three to five years. Then come out with Miss yeah. Marvel. You know, and yeah, I agree with that. We got to build that appetite back up. Absence makes the heart grow mm-hmm. fonder. Look, if you have chocolate chip cookies three meals a day, seven days a week, it doesn't matter how much you like chocolate chip cookies. Eventually, you're just going to be like, this is crap. Have you been reading my blog? Um, food <laughs> yeah. blog? <laughs> yeah, your wife, your wife, to, your my wife doctor reads makes it to me, me but that. yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm getting. 
So with that, I think we'll weave on a blockbuster of our own, which is uh, if folks want to get in touch with us, uh, the best way to do that is to go uh, and leave us a voicemail uh, at podcasters.spotify.com and forward slash pod, forward slash show, forward slash brick pit. There's a button there. You can click and leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the air if you want us to. And uh, we'll share your thoughts with everyone out in the in the world here. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can email us brickpit at gmail.com. And uh, we really appreciate all of you listening out there. If you would, it would be super great if you could tell your friends and family about the show so we can continue to grow in whatever way you think that's best, uh, social media or otherwise. If you tell three friends and then they tell then, three friends. Then we'll all... They will all be happier. If you get 70 new friends to listen to the podcast, you'll get your very own brick pit mobile. (laughs) Void where excluded. (laughs) (laughs) Prohibited (laughs) Prohibited in the United States and all outlying territories. (laughs) We'll allow you to pay for a trip to come to our brick pit uh, investors meeting. (laughs) Or you can assemble your own brick If, pit if you team. have ideas on how to improve the show, write them on the back of a $100 bill and send them to us. <laughs> In any case, we appreciate you listening. And until next time, this is The Brick Pit. <laughs>